Welcome to the podcast of ideas. We're living in strange times. It was only a month or two ago that the nation was taking a breather after a general election and almost four years of political battle. And now, most of us find ourselves cooped up at home, unable to socialise or work as we used to, or predict when this is all going to end. The coronavirus might have changed life for many of us quite drastically, but at the Academy of Ideas we're adamant that it won't stop our ability to challenge and interrogate the cultural, political and scientific big questions of our time. And with this in mind, the following podcast will be one of hopefully several Academy of Ideas team discussions about what is going on in this week's news. And we know we're not the only ones who want to talk about what's going on and what our new way of life might mean for broader societal and political trends. So while you're listening, please leave a comment below on Facebook or SoundCloud, wherever you're listening, and let's carry on the discussion. So now here's me, Ella Whelan, with Claire Fox, Jeff Kidder, Jacob Reynolds, Rob Lyons, Mo Lovett and Alice Donald, kicking off our new remote podcast of ideas. So let's first look at the government measures, particularly this debate that's going on between whether or not the really quite stringent new rules in terms of social distancing and people staying at home are convincing whether people think they've gone too far. There was a huge amount of talk about a lockdown for quite a while. And while the government convincingly said for a long time, no, we really believe in liberty and this isn't something we're going to do. We now find ourselves in a completely different world to last week where the simplest of freedoms going out for a walk um, seem to be constrained. So Alistair, why don't we first get your views on what this is all about? Yeah, well, I suppose uh, it, my initial thoughts are that it's it's been quite a short time that COVID-19 has been with us, but a lot seems to have happened and there seems to have been various different shifts uh, that have taken place over the, pa- the past few weeks. Personally, I was quite impressed with the initial response from the government. I mean, I'm no epidemiologist, but uh, the, the, the kind of herd immunity idea seemed to me to be reasonably pl- plausible. And the measures that they sought initially to introduce as a result of that analysis seemed to uh, have a level of common sense about them. And I particularly liked the way that they were uh, willing to let people to some extent take their own actions and judge for themselves how they could best get around this. We then seemed to go into a second phase where all hell broke loose and everybody seemed to be wanting to lock down, which was interesting that uh, it, it did seem to be the result of a clamour by the media, especially. Um, if you remember the initial press conferences, every time the Prime Minister spoke, it was met afterwards with uh, a number of different questions, which were all about how soon can you take action to lock down. And the government, to some extent, I think, seemed to lose their nerve a little bit. And, and uh, the resultant lockdown, I thought, wasn't uh, the right way to go, because I think if we are to get through this together and with a, a level of so, kind of social connection, then I think that it is important that people have some level of space uh, to make judgments of their own. That's not to say that the state shouldn't be taking measures, but I do, you know, it did make me nervous, uh, the, the rush to lock everything down. The third thing, and the, this is the final point for just now, um, I, I think rather encouragingly over the last couple of days, there does seem to be quite a lot of articles and analysis which are raising interesting questions about the wisdom of a lockdown and uh, raising the necessity of taking some fairly difficult political choices as to how we deal with that. And I think that's an encouraging uh, sign that we may be uh, having uh, on the verge of a more useful debate about the way forward. Jacob. Yes. So I think it's worth following on from Alistair's points about the clamour for increased lockdown. It's worth reminding ourselves a little bit why, um, or one of the reasons why it's important that we try as much as possible to trust people uh, to have given them a wider scope of liberty as possible. It's not because people, are, as it's often portrayed, that people are blasé about the amount of people d- that might die as a result of this, and that it's just all about keeping the economy going strong. No, the, the progressive case for trying to avoid these lockdowns as much as possible is that the moment you take away from people the sense and the confidence that they can be trusted to, to some degree work this out for themselves, or at the very least use their critical faculties and make rational decisions on this sort of individual basis that no central planner is going to be able to do, the moment you take that away, then you start to see not just a sort of sense of social connection breaking down, but also people's ability to navigate the complexities that this is throwing up. 
People have been people have been asked to make loads of different judgments at the moment about what they can do that's safe, who they can go and visit, which things they should be dropping off to who, when. Those things, though, we can only really begin to make sense of all of that complexity if we feel that we're able to be trusted by the government and to trust each other to some degree to go and make those decisions. And that's why the kind of, for lack of a better phrase, the, like, the line of the sort of Owen Jones of this world where just clamoring for more and more lockdowns as a result of this uncaring Tory government, they in their typical statist fashion forget what it is that's at stake here and why it is important that we try and trust people to some degree to be able to work this out for themselves. Claire? If you get to a situation whereby you assume that the government will take everything away from you in terms of decision making, it actually paralyzes things even further, but in a very unhelpful way, because it's going to come back to bite the government, ironically, because then they're going to say, why didn't you solve this? Why didn't you do this for us? Why doesn't everybody have masks? Why can't we all be tested yesterday? Instead of realising that this is something that needs to have a joint strategy by the state, but also by individuals whose agency is not being completely stripped back and whose judgment is not completely undermined by this idea that you're not allowed to make any decisions for yourself. On the initial uh, lockdown, I mean, it would be tempting to say that it's the wrong strategy. If anyone who believes in freedom feels instinctively this can't be right. But to say a couple of more positive things about it, they have gone for a lockdown which is in a way self-policing, even though it's quite strident. And uh, therefore, I appreciate that, at least. I'm sure I've just heard that Yorkshire police are stopping people on motorways. So there's always going to be people who are going to jump the gun and try and make it more draconian than it need be. Um, But actually, there's been a sense in which this is a voluntary telling that you should stay in your own house, if you see what I mean, without. um, And and they keep stressing uh, policing by consent. And I think largely people are doing it. And I've got no way of knowing whether it's the right thing to do in terms of uh, health and so on. But I think it would be wrong to say that, as people keep saying, oh, the science and the evidence shows that you have to do this. Because one of the things that is emerging is the differing ways that evidence is being interpreted, the different uh, experts saying different things. And actually, only the day before the lockdown was announced, the deputy chief medical officer, who I really rate, Jenny Harris, made the point that we had to be very careful about a lockdown because there were other health costs. She stressed mental health and said that there are social things that we had to consider. And then the next day, suddenly there was this very formal announcement by Boris Johnson with no medical or scientific experts there at all. I mean, it was a political decision. That's fair enough. But it seemed to happen overnight. So even though they've stressed timing, getting the timing right, actually, they did seem to be responding to a more political row. And the FT reported that Michael Gove and um, Matt Hancock were actually really fighting for this behind the scenes against Johnson. So it's just then when they hide and say, no, no, now the medical evidence shows we've got to do it now, didn't seem very convincing to me. And it's not something that we should, they've got to be able to make judgments and stand by them without keep citing evidence in that way. Jeff. This is a couple of things I would add to that. Um, I tend to agree that I thought initially the government handled it quite well. But I do think that particularly the closing down of the schools and the schools are a focal point of communities, villages, towns, uh, whatever. I think closing those down really weakens that sense of community or certainly isolates people from that. And then on top of that, you have a lockdown where people are basically uh, treated as a problem and policed. Having said that, I agree with what Claire just said, because it is a voluntary People, to a degree, have bought into the lockdown for a limited period of time. And to me, they people see it as a necessary evil to tackle a particular problem, which will be lifted after a, sense of a, a, a particular period of time. When you see people demanding more and quicker and whatever, I don't think that's the consensus view. I haven't met anybody who argues that it needs to go further and faster in, in, in real life. Most people have bought into it as a you know, as a temporary thing. And, and I'm, I'm happy to go along with it, even though I'm sceptical uh, about whether it's the best way, to, best way to do it. I keep thinking about what's happening in Spain, where you have a situation where there's been a lockdown for one to two weeks. Uh, and the problem there is a terrible situation where the problem seems to be getting worse 
the horrific uh, uh, scenes that, that they had in the, some of the care homes there, which are heartrending. And the response of people here as well, they should have, or in the media, is they should have locked down harder, faster, earlier in Spain, which it just doesn't seem a credible reaction because you think, well, if ordinary people could have gone and looked at the nursing homes or been part of society and, you know, uh, uh, been able to influence, you might, might be able to influence things positively before those terrible events occurred. Uh, and they weren't able to because they were in lockdown. So I think there are real problems are being stored up and we have to co constantly monitor that. And Rob? Yeah, I, thought I, I agree that, um, that the initial approach seems to be uh, very sensible and was very well justified. I was very impressed with Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance in terms of the way that they were presenting things. Um, but also, given the uncertainties that are of the, the data and of the modelling and all that and, and what we know about this uh, virus, this is within the realms of things that could reasonably be done, as long as it only lasts for a few weeks. Um, what concerns me is it's not clear on what basis they will judge that this has worked, other than just carrying on and carrying on. Um, do, do they say at a certain level of infection, right, we can loosen these things up a bit? Um, or do they just narrow it, have a mindset of we can't loosen things because we won't be able to lock down again? It, it's, it's not clear. I mean, I'm glad that it's a political decision in a way and not simply um, uh, based on the expertise or something because the expertise is, in, is very up in the air and it's very uncertain what, what, what's happening. But I do worry that with the, the politicians at the moment having the media and, and that sort of class in London in their ears the whole time, that will end up not listening to the, to the people, as it were, which has been one of the nice things about the Brexit uh, discussion is about the people being part of these decisions again or being taken into account again. Um, and therefore, that will just roll on through a very precautionary approach rather than having a clear sense of when this should stop. No. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I thought uh, Boris Johnson handled it really well to start with. He was he was basically saying to the people, we trust you. These are the measures we need you to put in place. We're going to trust you to go about doing that. If you don't, we may have to bring in more stringent uh, measures. But for now, you know, we're, we're libertarian, we're liberal, and um, we want you to abide by these uh, by these guide, guidelines. And then we've got this massive, as other people have said, this massive clamour from the media to just lock it down, to shut the schools. And we almost got a kind of echo of the Brexit uh, debate. We don't trust people. We don't think people are good enough, morally worthy enough to take these decisions for themselves. And then I really felt that uh, Johnson was kind of listening. He was listening to the press. He was listening to his own critics far too much. And he, he kind of lost his nerve a bit and, and then went uh, you know, in favour of this clamour, which I was very worried about because if you think about this in, in the long term and what it means, a lockdown, people being shut in their own homes with own, their own only their own family members that can only happen for so long uh, uh, and like rob said you know how long is uh, how long is long enough and how will we know when long long enough this, these are kind of uncertain things so to me the fact that the government was looking at the timing of these measures it was clear they had a plan that the timing would be kind of coming in instrumental uh, measures as and when needed but because we had this massive clamour from people who, from in the media, who just didn't trust people to behave themselves, um, I, I feel like he, he kind of wavered and then and said, "Okay, let's do a lockdown," uh, and we will never know if it was too soon or too late, as we know, as we've already said. We can debate whether or not the lockdown is um, necessary or what it's doing, but one very real thing that is happening is the Coronavirus Act um, or the bill that's as we speak currently now um, going through royal assent it is going to happen and uh, whatever you think about the science of the you know precautions that are needed to be taken to fight this virus there are some serious legal changes happening um, as a result of this act for example it gives the power to the police and the immigration officers to 
detain not only people who have the virus, but people who may have the virus, which is very, <laughs> that phrase is very important because it essentially gives um, the power for the police to detain anyone that they want to. Um, it's a huge, huge power. And also things that don't seem entirely relevant at all um, or very suspect, like changing the rules on how many doctors have to sign off as someone with mental health issues in order to get them sectioned. Um, things that once uh, changed seem to be very difficult to revert back to. And the government's had to have its arm forced by David Davis to have this, um, these, the Coronavirus Act um, have a clause in it that means it gets reviewed every six months when initially it was going to be reviewed in two years. All of these things raise huge questions as to um, what actions the government is taking and you know whether or not there is room to be very sympathetic to the idea that we need to band together and fight this virus, but also remembering that these decisions are political and some of them to me anyway, don't sound like very good political decisions. I think it's important that COVID-19 bill with a two-year clause, because it does make you think their instinct was not to put a sunset clause in. And it's a bit nerve-wracking that they didn't themselves say, don't worry, we'll review this regularly, but brought it in for two years. I don't go along with the people who think this is an excuse for the state to accrue all these powers and we're about to enter a period of fascism. But it does indicate that I, I was really pleased that it wasn't just David Davis who brought the six-month rule in, but actually a lot of people were saying this needs to be regularly reviewed. We don't mind loaning you these powers for an emergency period, but we're watching and we're not going to let you steal our liberty. I was interested that some people's reaction was, oh, you're so PC with your civil liberties. It was a kind of funny reaction from some people, maybe on the right, who just said, oh, this is like lefties going on about the wrong thing. But I was actually glad that there was something of a reaction against that two year without sunset clauses and that actually, therefore, David Davis had backing and the government backed off. But it does indicate why we do need to keep our eye on this and be vocal as much as we can be in the public sphere when we think that our liberties are being taken without due regard for the emergency temporary nature of them, which is why I think Rob's crucial question about when will we know whether it's read all right to go out again has to be kept on asking because they haven't told us on what basis that's going to happen. And it is nerve wracking. Jacob. Yeah, just to say of all people, like there's, I've almost never take advantage of those online petitions to like do an online petition or contact your MP. But of all people, my MP, Stella, Stella Greasy, the, the office was right on this. It was like some people can still surprise you yet, despite uh, my previous thoughts of people like uh, having not a sort of freedom loving bone in their body. But she was sort of riding the uh, riding the crest of a fight, a fight against some of the more draconian aspects of the bill. So it's the, I don't know, these situations surprise you, but it's just the then depressing flip side of it is people who, I mean, we shouldn't trust them anyway, but people who go on for ages about the uh, Boris Johnson's neo-fascist takeover of the British state being completely silent on issues around, genuine issues around freedom, presumably because they were they've been fantasizing for so long about a like right-wing government that this is almost like getting them off it's like it's really really quite really quite depressing i think claire's right about the, the the point about this isn't some sort of fascist takeover and in fact one of the things that struck me is is some parts of the state and particularly some parts of the police do seem a bit nervous about actually having these powers there was a, a report yesterday where um, one ex-representative of the Police Federation was, was saying, well, how are we going to handle uh, these draconian powers? What, you know, what's everybody going to think of us as, as a police force? So there's a, there's a sense of nervousness amongst the police, actually, that they're being handed uh, such extensive powers, which I think, I think is interesting. I think the problem might come because even although people are nervous and don't necessarily want these, I think once you have them, it starts to trap you in the logic of how you operate. So already there's talk about um, uh, what are going to be the enforcement rules of these new powers, because as soon as you have something, it necessarily raises a question of how you're going to enforce them. And I think the situation in France has been particularly interesting in this respect because um, they've introduced these new powers and it's, it's led to proliferation of other things that have happened ever since they've introduced them. So uh, the state has to dream of new ways of 
um, people showing that they're permitted to be in a certain situation. So you have certificates to uh, say that you're permitted to go out, you have uh, the imposition of fines, you have all of a sudden all these other parts of the state. So for example, local authorities or mayor's offices who are trying to get it, who, who, are, who feel compelled to then start to introduce their own particular forms of controls, I suppose partly because they need to be seen to be doing something. And so there's just a kind of spiraling logic of these things that's not necessarily um, what they set out to achieve at the start, but which then takes on its own momentum. Uh, just very briefly, I'm as nervous as anybody else about the, the these kind of uh, rules, but I think that the, the one silver lining has been the complete mess they've made of the universal credit system. And the reason that people are queuing up, hundreds of thousands of people are queuing up on this system is because the state doesn't know who they are and they have to prove their identity all over again. So all these self-employed people who are, tr are trying to are applying for universal credit because they don't know what's going to happen with uh, Rishi Sunak and this um, uh, bailout for, for self-employed people, which is supposed to be announced later today, were applying for universal credit. But there wasn't a simple way of saying, I'm already registered with you because I pay tax to you. I do self-assessment. They, they, they couldn't join that with that. So... From that point of view, I think the idea of a, the overweening big brother state comes up against the failures of process and bureaucracy. So that at least makes me moderately optimistic. Hello, Claire Fox here, Director of the Academy of Ideas. If you're stuck at home with more time on your hands, why not explore the Battle of Ideas Festival archive? On our SoundCloud, we have years worth of political, cultural, and scientific debates on everything from climate change to Rembrandt, and they're all for free. Take a tour through years of the Battle of Ideas Festival by clicking on our Podcast of Ideas SoundCloud. So while we might be having lots of debates about the scientific aspect of this or what effect the lockdown is having in fighting the virus, the other aspect of this is what the government measures in terms of lockdown is going to have on the economy on a broader level in terms of the mass shutdown of industry, the closing down of the hospitality um, industry, and on a personal level, what effect this is having day to day on the average worker. So Rob, do you want to take us through some of the changes that have happened and what you think they'll mean for the economy? Well, I mean, it's, it seems a, a very long time ago, but it was probably only about six or seven weeks that people were talking about the effect of uh, this coronavirus as being maybe China's GDP will fall by 1% during the, the current quarter. Now we're talking about a global downturn. And that to remember that actually, even during the 2008 crisis, because of countries like China and whatever keeping going, I don't think there was actually a world recession as such, or if there was, it was very, very brief. It was just that was, there was a, a major recession in uh, many of the Western countries. Now we're talking about a global downturn. And it is astonishing. So the U, uh, US uh, employment statistics, or rather joblessness statistics, have just been released. And the number of people making an initial claim for um, unemployment has gone in just a, a week or so from a normal 233,000, say, to well over 3 million in a, in a week. The graph is astonishing. It's just a vertical line on it. So that's the scale of uh, the problem. And I can see why Donald Trump has been very keen to try and get the economy back to normal as soon as possible, because the effects could be fairly astonishing. Uh, in the UK, Rishi Sunak has obviously uh, released some or put in place some fairly exceptional powers and policies, bailing out businesses such as paying 80% of the wages of employees that would otherwise be made un unemployed and therefore being furloughed, which is becoming a bit of a buzzword in the last week or two. And he's supposed to be announcing things, assistance in relation to the self-employed as well. But even then, that's quite apart from the government debt that will be built up by doing that for any extended length of time, those workers who are getting that 80%, a 
assuming they get it in a reasonable amount of time and it doesn't take weeks for it to come through, are still taking a 20% pay cut overnight. And self-employed people are hoping for only a 20% pay cut overnight. So this is going to have a very major impact on people's living standards uh, and on the, the general development of the economy and whether that can be caught up. And we will be seeing the effects of this, whether it's merely till the end of this year, but in all prospect, we're going to see a permanent reduction in GDP compared to where it would have been. Um, and the shorter the period of time before the economy is allowed to normalise again, the better in terms of the, the both the coming years and future generations. Yes, and one of the confusing things has been that the government has seemingly done well it has done a huge amount and you keep uh, you know every news presenter when they report on anything that Rishi Sunak says says this is unprecedented but at the same time I mean the oversight in basically just missing out the self-employed um or doing things measures that seem to be huge but then also you know like you said Rob people aren't managing to get on universal credit statutory sick pay is still a pittance um all these things that just doesn't seem to have worked feels like they've almost done things kind of not quite half assed but certainly it's it hasn't been comprehensive Jacob what do you think about this so just to try and put it into a little bit of context and point out what's different it I, I someone will, will correct me and maybe one of our listeners will but a services crash of the degree that we're going to experience is basically unprecedented almost in economic history, except for other kinds of plagues. Even during wars, people still went out and got their hair cut and still went to the pub and still went. So services crash is a real, something that's going to really set this, um, set this apart. And as people have pointed out, even the comparison with World War II in terms of a short, as it was a really severe, sharp drop in output doesn't really quite get to the heart of it, because at least in the wars, output was redirected towards something else. People were taken away from buildings, certain things in factories and made to build weapons and munitions and things. So there's a degree to which people are slightly without precedent for responding to this kind of crisis, which is why all of the sort of policymakers and global financial elites who learned their trade during the financial crisis are to some degree ill-prepared to deal with quite what's going on. Um, and this, I think this is the same with a lot of our commentators as well. A lot of people have been making the rather glib point that when Trump says we need to reopen the economy, that all he cares about is the stock market. Of course, to some degree, Trump's made his approval ratings kind of the stock market. So that is true to some degree. But this isn't just like the financial crisis in that some assets that people once thought were worth some amount of money turned out to be worth less. And so there was a sort of liquidity issue. This is really the heart of how economies work. This is about output value, people actually creating things and giving valuable things to each other. So people who sort of learned their trade in criticizing the economy for being overly financialized, sort of a wrong to think that just because someone cares about the stock market, there isn't a wider thing going on here. And I think the response that we're seeing at the moment suggests something quite, a, a, almost a continuation of an unholy alliance between the state and the market, which to some degree did characterize earlier eras of eras of sort of financialization and that buzzword neoliberalism where you needed a strong state to roll back protections in order to allow the economy to boot. This is like that whole thing on like taken on steroids to a degree because you've got the government literally having to step in and pay people's wages in the case of the UK in order to keep the um, wheels of the economy turning. So this is, I mean, it really is quite unprecedented and hope there will be some bounce back and there'll be some pent-up orders once the crisis goes away that can be made again. But the pints poured, haircuts done, et cetera, et cetera, that's all lost output that will never be recovered. So this is this will be really interesting to see how when this is done, what kind of bounce back there is. Claire? While this might not be the smoothest resolution that they've announced, God knows the whole and total reorganisation of the economy overnight is something else to do. And they haven't, in my opinion, done that badly in terms of trying to come up with solutions. The only other thing to say about um, uh, the government in relation to this is the danger is, is that it's going to put completely unrealistic expectations on any state moving forward. Because even with what they've done, they announced this amazing package will pay 80% of your salary. And I take the point about 20% pay cut. Then immediately self-employed said, what about us? We want 80% too. And then there's people with anomalies saying, what about us? What about us? As though somehow the government can resolve all problems. Jenny Russell today 
um, has written an article basically saying, oh, this will be it now. Uh, all those Brexiteers who said we could stand our own two feet, we don't need state intervention and regulation. This proves that we do, really. But actually, um, it doesn't prove that, but it does mean that we're going to leave this crisis with a whole different set of economic expectations. I suppose the fact that it's a worldwide phenomena might mean something. It's not just like one country crashing, but everywhere is crashing. That's obviously quite depressing because there's no one to turn to. But it, I suppose it's just going to be uh, utterly extraordinary to see how the whole of the world resolves to get itself out of this when it needs to become productive again. Now, I wanted to say some positive things because otherwise it's just too scary. Um, although it's true that it's not as... Uh, as been pointed out by Jacob, the kind of the same as the war. There's a huge range of um, companies that um, have now decided, well, we, you know, we don't make gin anymore. We're going to make hand detergent. We're not, we, you know, we, we can now not just make hoovers, but we can make uh, medical equipment and so on and so forth. So there's a, there's a kind of impetus for innovation. And it does mean that maybe it's an indication that some of those companies, which have long passed their sell by date, anyway could adapt far more quickly and be innovative when they need to be and hopefully that will give us some way out of it i wanted to just quickly mention that it's we've had the underbelly of the economy revealed to us in terms of who does all the work one of the things that the maybe the people close to westminster and the kind of uh, uh, elites hadn't noticed was who actually are doing the work in the factories in terms of keeping the uh, society going, making sure that we have the electricity to be able to uh, talk to each other on this podcast, all of these different things. It seems that there might well be a reconsideration of some of the unskilled workers who work at Tesco, work in the care homes, who are the uh, cleaners and so on, who may in fact be uh, recognised after this as people who are very much more important to the economy than we've normally noticed. On Sky this morning, one of the presenters talked about the biscuit factory workers and how if they all got so scared by coronavirus and didn't turn up and anybody else in the food chain, we would actually have a famine as well as anything else. So suddenly these people become important and most journalists, most politicians had never even noticed they existed uh, a few weeks ago. So that's an interesting reconsideration of how we'll look at economic life after this as well. No. Yeah, I was going to talk about people at the lowest end of the economy, actually. Um, people have made the point already, I think, that um, it has highlighted the precarity that so many people are in, not just the self-employed, but how people are living kind of hand to mouth week on week. And then this sudden kind of interruption in their income can have such devastating effects. But there's another side to the story as well, which is that... Um, so we're being given the option to have a three-month uh, mortgage holiday. People are not be turfed out of their um, rental properties, um, all sort of debts, credit card debts, all, all the rest of it being suspended. Um, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work out, but for people who are on very, very uh, low salaries to and, and have got themselves into debt, this could suddenly be a bit of a, a breathing space and maybe get up to, you know, get, get back up to speed again. I don't know whether these holidays are going to just be tied onto the end of your mortgage payment or if you're going to have to make them back, your rental payments, you're going to have to pay a little bit back. Uh, every week after we've come out of the crisis. I mean, that to me is still a little bit unclear. I don't know if anybody else is uh, a bit clearer on that. But um, for the people at the lowest end of the economy, there's almost like an opportunity to just, ha you know, to kind of regroup and uh, cancel some of your credit card debts and kind of get back on top as well. So um, the other thing I want to say, which I think is quite positive, is... Um, Obviously, Jacob's talked about the service economy and how, you know, this is unprecedented, that word again, um, in terms of um, the loss to that sector. But are we going to see a little boost in manufacturing in terms of essential things? Could that actually be quite a positive thing for the economy? You know, hand sanitizers, ventilators. Are we going to have more kind of um, mass scale uh, production because of this crisis? And how long will it last? I suppose that's an unknown question, really. Alistair. Um, yeah, I, I think the the big question, uh, perhaps on on people's lips, is whether going through a situation like this can have some sort of beneficial long term effect in terms of um, making us rethink. Uh, about the economy from, you know, right the way through how it all operates. And I think, to be honest, I think the answer to that is, is 
very unclear uh, at the moment. But it does strike me, I, th I think, although obviously lots of people are thinking about how it is that they get the goods that they need to survive and effectively, you know, how, how we continue to consume things. I think there has been an, an interesting uh, focus and a, a heartening focus on, on what it is that we produce and how, how we produce it. And I don't want to kind of overclaim for this, but, you know, when you, when you start to look at things like um, whether people can switch into producing ventilators and, and what are the new lines that we, we could produce, I, I think that's a positive uh, discussion that we should, we should take some heart from without necessarily claiming that it's going to be uh, transformed the way that we think about things. Jacob. Yeah, just very quickly on this. Um, one doesn't want to speculate too much. Uh, we might have talked about this before privately, but one doesn't want to speculate too much. But it is a little bit surprising to me how much capacity the British state has shown to mobilise resources and to plug contacts with manufacturing firms that do exist to get them to uh, provide ventilators and repurpose uh, conference centers into hospitals and things like this. I don't want to say it's the take back control dividend, but um, I, I perhaps a little bit in that direction. And similarly, people themselves wanting to mobilize, more readiness for people themselves wanting to mobilize, whether that's volunteering for the NHS or also the huge number of people that volunteer, or not volunteered, but put their hands up, say they're going to go and work on farms and help harvest in. But there's, there's something going on about the capacity that the economy the british economy has shown that i think is a little bit surprised i mean rob there's two i suppose there's two sides to this on the one hand the positive thing that some people have already picked up on is that even with all the caveats you can say and the problems that have been raised by what the government's doing and we await Rishi Sunak's pronouncements on the self-employed, for example, but already several papers are reporting that people are going to have to get ready for the fact that it's not going to be as comprehensive as what he's offered for those who are on the books. Actually, the other side of it is that um, the this mass state intervention, with all its problems, sort of blows open the kind of Tina argument, which we've been living with for so long, which is there's no magic money tree. You can't do anything. You have to have, if not austerity, some kind of form of it. You know, it's, we, we're not only a few years away from spreadsheet fill and the whole narrative of balancing the books. And yes, we're in a global crisis, but suddenly anything's possible. Um, and surely that's a positive. Um, in, terms, in terms of the government, obviously, you know, it, 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 I, I think that that idea of, of austerity or, or the, uh, automatically we should be trying to reduce um, government spending uh, has certainly been called into question uh, and whether that's a good thing or not is another matter. Um, whether whether the, the state should be taking over the running of things or, or, or spending all the money is that's open to question, I think. Um, I do think that the, the, the current situation past week or so has revealed that the idea of self-employment as this brilliant thing that it shows us we've got this amazing entrepreneurial society is it seems like um, the, the lad has been kicked away from a lot of self-employed people. It's suddenly not as attractive an idea as being an employee. Um, so we shall see how that plays out in terms of um, uh, the, the future of, uh, of work. Uh, just a few very quick points. I mean, my reaction to that whole swords into ventilators kind of discussion that was going on now, or even the, the, the report today about James Dyson making 10,000 ventilators actually seems like a lot of PR guff at the moment because it's going to take so long to get these ventilators to the peak of the crisis will be over we might be flogging them to someone else but the idea that these things are easily turned around is another matter it also raises questions about globalization if you're relying on parts from China even if you're not relying on whole goods it becomes a problem if you can't make ventilators because there's a particular part that you owe is only made in China at the moment, that's bad news. I think it was Jaguar Land Rover were flying in car radios because they were keep, it was blocking up the production line um, in terms of, of getting cars off the off the line. Um, so there's lots of discussion about globalization, whether that was a good thing or whether this is the end of globalization, it's going to be rowed back. There's also questions about security, about manufactured goods, but also I will, I'm sure there'll be a discussion about food security at some point as well. You know, how we've gone on the idea that we can get everything on the world market, so it's fine. I wonder if that, that discussion is going to come back, especially if there's a bounce back in terms of the disease in China. There's no sign of it officially yet, 
but Japan today has reported um, more lockdown measures because there's been 41 new cases in Tokyo, I believe. So this thing ain't over yet, and these uh, discussions and uh, ideas have still got a long way to work themselves out. If you're listening to this podcast, you, like us, are desperately trying to make sense of the world around you. As well as the confusion caused, obviously, by the current coronavirus crisis, there are a number of far deeper and wider trends that are causing confusion for lots of us who like to think politically. That's why we created an initiative run by the BOI charity called The Academy, which we think of as university as it should be. It's an annual residential two-day summer school that brings together a wide variety of people who want to understand the world around us. We do this usually by going back, by rereading and reading the best that's been thought and said. This year's Academy is on the exhaustion of political language. It will take place on the Saturday and Sunday, the 20th and 21st of June, 2020. For more information, you can go to theboi.co.uk slash academy2020. We hope to see you there. Not all the news is doom and gloom. While some, particularly journalists in press conferences, might be almost crying out for Armageddon and lockdowns and even more stringent measures, actually the sense and the feeling of uh, the everyman on the street is more positive. Anecdotally, at least, I think lots of us have noticed that even if our neighbours are keeping our distance and practising good social distancing, that life feels smaller and more sociable, whether that be chatting to the um, cashier and thanking them uh, when you're getting your shopping or asking your neighbour on WhatsApp if they're okay. There seems to be perhaps um, a more valuing of solidarity and people's desire to stay in touch and help each other not only the massive rise of people who have signed up to volunteer with the government scheme but also the proliferation of any number of independent organizations happening within communities of people sacrificing their time and reaching out and helping each other jacob do you think that this we're going to come out of this um, displaying sort of the best of uh, humanity and our ability to support each other or what do you have to say about the sort of rather more doom and gloom view that's coming out of uh, people in the media especially i'm tempted to think that in these crises i mean there are some things we can't do without as human beings and as social creatures we can't do without a certain amount of sociability we can't do without a certain amount of feeling that we're plugged into the wider world and that hasn't gone away it's just found been forced to take new forms it's, it's funny you mentioned that people giving each other a wide berth on the streets. Because even that in itself has become a sort of acknowledged social ritual when you walk along to someone, you nod your head and you make a big show in a sort of particularly British way of making more of a show of getting out of their way than actually getting out of their way. Um, and yes, the proliferation, there's been a proliferation around me of like mutual aid societies that have sprung up just literally spontaneously um, in and amongst people. Um, and I think the, the also, at least for me and lots of my friends, friends that we have around the world or in different parts of the country, suddenly this is an excuse to sit down and share a beer with them over Zoom. Um, it's, we, we can't do without a certain amount of sociability. And I think that obviously there's been examples of some like relatively nasty elements of humanity, but there's still enough, um, provided this thing stays, as people have said, circumscribed amount of time. It's a thing we ask for people to take part in for a small amount of time. I think there's plenty of uh, good stuff on show too. Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I would say, probably even on the most basic level, you realise the things you take for granted and then see that, in fact, there's many good things which, which you take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis. I think it's difficult because, as Jacob says, the etiquette of almost everything has changed in a week in London from even going on public transport to the... Uh, a wide berth in the streets. And I think, you know, I went to Sainsbury's yesterday, very big Sainsbury's, very well organized system for uh, in, in enforcing uh, social distancing, uh, making sure everybody's treated fairly and whatever. But within that, when you go up and in the store, people are really, really anxious. When somebody rang me up in the middle of the store and I answered the phone, uh, the shop just stopped and everybody just stares at you. Like, on the one hand, you're supposed to be there just for shopping. And, you know, what, what is going on? Something out of the ordinary is happening. So it's a very unusual atmosphere, which will change, uh, you know, it, it's flexible and 
uh, and fluid, and I'm not sure how it will work out. Obviously, all the volunteers, and hundreds of thousands of volunteers, there's somebody who helps us with, with much of our work who's working for the uh, blood banks and is working all hours helping. You know, there's a lot of tremendous things happening, and there's a great human spirit, but it's, it's you know, it's a developing situation. I've just got a query I'd like to ask, particularly the people who are more familiar with working in the media. Because most people consent to what's happening, but they're not enthusiastic. It's like people agree for it to happen. But when you see these press conferences, you have all these journalists who re obviously relish what's happening, can't wait for the, you know, all the questions are, why aren't these restrictions going further? Why, what about so-and-so who behaved badly? We've got to you know, st knock that down. I don't find people on a day-to-day -day level are like that and have that approach. And yet in a certain world, uh, it, people do have that approach and think that that's normal. And I remember many years ago, you, know, you had what you called laptop bombardiers even, people who really got so passionate about something, you, they lost all sense of perspective. But I can't quite get my head around why this small uh, minority of people, significant influential people, have become so... Uh, 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 committed and devoted to this in such a uh, not a very healthy way, whereas to most people I meet, uh, uh, it's not like that at all. So if somebody could untangle that a bit, it would be quite helpful. Alistair. Yeah, I, I think Jeff and Jacob are right that, it, that things are very unclear and far from black and white in what's, in what's going on. Um, one of the things that really struck me a couple of days ago was a tweet by David Lammy, where he talked about uh, the need for everybody to be careful and self-isolate properly and then finish the tweet by saying, this is the way that we can bring the country together again. And it just, there's a strange contradiction in that, in that you think about uh, the idea of social solidarity and it's, 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 um, it's you know, you individually think of connection and being in it, in it together, and yet being in it together in this uh, situation seems, is, is a very kind of isolating and almost fragmentary and disconnecting experience. So there's, there's, there's just something, uh, contradictory there and, and in the same sense we almost seem to be willing uh, or some people seem to be willing to accept restrictions on freedom and restrictions on democracy as part of that sacrifice as a means of creating solidarity so there's just it's just something that doesn't add up and how, how it works itself out I think is, is going to be interesting just a, an anecdote um, from from uh, around here uh, this week has been um, we have a, a someone who lives by who's uh, one of the emergency NHS workers who um, woke up the other morning uh, to find that one of his neighbours has got some building work going on and and uh, eight builders arrived to, to to do this building work and he had a bit of a go at them saying you shouldn't be here you shouldn't be working uh, you're not self distancing and all the rest of it so there was a kind of antagonism uh, to people. Uh, who were perceived as not doing the right thing, of not making that, that sacrifice. So I can understand as an NHS emergency worker why you might be perturbed by people not um, taking the actions that you think are very necessary to, to, to sort the situation out. But as uh, some other people in the street then came in and said, well, actually, you've got to recognise that these builders might be self-employed and there's all sorts of reasons why they might be working, responsibility to their family or the fact that the house might already be half gutted and the people living there might need the builders to to uh, to be there and to, to, to finish the work and so I think it's quite encouraging that you can have these kind of open conversations and out of these conversations I think most people are like Jeff says, most people are fairly reasonable and can see the problems from a number of different points of view. And that's why when you have the big initiatives like uh, the, you know, the 400,000, 500,000 people um, all signing up to be NHS volunteer workers, then you, you, know, you could see that on a small level, but also on a wider scale, there's some positive things going on here. And I, I think it's something to take heart from. No. Yeah, Harry Hodges did a lovely piece in the Telegraph today. Uh, no, Britain isn't facing a plague of COVID idiots or COVID idiots. Um, and he made the point that with the media constantly sharing this tiny number of lockdown rule breakers, it kind of makes them seem more numerous than they are. Whereas in reality, 93% of the population back the government strategy. That's a huge amount to back a single strategy. 
um, and most people are complying. Now, I don't know whether 93% are necessarily complying, but I do think it's um, kind of incumbent on us that have always, always felt that the goodness in human nature will, co will come out in these times, continue to stress that. Um, I, I made a tweet the other day about us not wanting to be um, a nation of finger pointers and curtain twitchers. And uh, somebody I knew had just been about to try and ring a, a government hotline to complain about uh, people in his street uh, coming together for a barbecue and it made him think twice. So I think it's important when people are feeling scared, people are feeling uh, risk averse, people are feeling uh, very uncertain of what, what what's ahead of them to keep reminding people that essentially people are good and um, my experience in my neighborhood has been entirely that um, I've I sent those cards around to all my over 70s neighbors and I got cards back from my over 70s neighbors saying this was before the lockdown saying if you want any help as well and you know I've had, never had so many nice little cards on my mantelpiece it's been lovely um, when I walk the dog people are social distancing but they're making a little uh, joke of it like Jacob says a little ritual about it and it, it's um, at first people were just avoiding each other and, and staying apart but now people are looking up and smiling making a comment about it and I think it's good to kind of highlight these uh, positive uh, images uh, of what's happening in our local communities as a kind of kickback against um, some of the I feel like the media are are looking for the next narrative they're, they're kind of pushing for the next story when are we going to have this kind of collective mental breakdown because we're all inside too much and I, I feel like the media are driving on to the next news cycle and, and it's really important that the humanists amongst us um you know point out that most people are being very well behaved most people are being very caring and considerate and there is this kind of i feel it in my community anyway my neighborhood a little community spirit emerging it's a good thing Have you subscribed to the Academy of Ideas newsletter yet? It's the best way to stay up to date with the work we're continuing to do during these strange times. Hear from our director, Claire Fox, stay informed about what events we're planning for the autumn in 2021, and most crucially, keep up to speed with the numerous Zoom book clubs, salon meetings, and lectures we plan to release in the coming weeks and months. Follow the link at the bottom of this podcast to sign up. Claire, I mean, one of the things that we haven't mentioned is initially when we first sort of announced the lockdown measures, there was a huge amount of discussion about selfish people hoarding and scenes constantly played on the news of people, you know, through our person ramming someone else in the queue at Aldi or uh, people queuing up and doing huge shops when they were told they shouldn't. But also the uh, sort of message that's coming from certainly the media or, or lots of politicians that dissent at this time that questioning and being critical about what's happening or maybe even uh, before the lockdown officially happened sneaking out for that final beer was you know absolutely immoral and couldn't be done and was continuously condemned is there I mean all of us have just sort of given anecdotes about how actually people are keeping relatively upbeat about this um, and there seems to be a disjunct between the way ordinary people are acting and the message coming down from high now I don't want to necessarily use the b word in all of this and we don't want to talk about Brexit but is that a broader trend that we've been seen happening for a while where the establishment as it were is taking one tack and acting in a certain way and actually the mass of the public are perhaps being more sensible so one of the most important things that we have to keep our eye on, it seems to me, is the attack on dissenters. Because dissenting doesn't, and, and you know, there's almost a temptation by some people to uh, imply that if you raise a different uh, intellectual position on what you think about the lockdown or the economy or any of these things, that you're the equivalent of those ridiculously mentally unhinged people going around licking the tube and all that kind of thing, licking toilet bells, you know, of which there's probably about six in the world, but we've all seen the videos, if you see know what I mean, and then we're all meant to imagine that's what people are like. So I think uh, encouraging dissenting views is hugely important and resisting the temptation of having a lockdown intellectually is something which the Academy of Ideas should be very much at the fore of. Just in terms of answering Jeff's question and relates to what you've asked, Ella, um, Jeff asked, well, why... You know, what is it with these media types that they just seem to have got into this whipping up 
you know, these kind of lockdown fever uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. Well, first of all, just to note that it was interesting on the Sky podcast this morning that I did with Adam Bolton, that he sounded as surprised as anyone when he said to me that he agreed with me about the questioning at the press conferences being unhelpful. So I don't think it's straightforward that all of the media are doing this. I, I think that certain there's a small group of uh, particularly lobby journalists who have got into this situation, but that actually more journalists are beginning to ask questions. And some commentators, as we've already uh, heard about Harry Hodges, but we had a great article by Madeleine Grant, uh, but actually even behind the scenes, the news journalists, the science commentators, they're all sort of, it's slightly more nuanced than just the questions you hear in those press conferences. But there's no doubt about it that there is a lazy reliance on things which we know the media have done for the last few years. I mean, whipping up fears. Well, project fear. I mean, we've seen it already. You know, uh, treating people, the public, with disdain and assuming that they're all idiots, too stupid to understand instructions. Well, hardly a novel idea in amongst certain circles. So I think some of those kind of lazy tropes about what's happening in society have just carried on. But interestingly, it's also thrown up some challenging, some challenges to that. So I've already mentioned, but I think it's worth saying that whereas one of the journalists I was talking to earlier on something made the point that there was a problem of dissenting millennial men hanging around in parks, then went on to congratulate all the young people who work in supermarkets who are millennial men. You know, they're all the same people, right? I mean, so we also get this kind of reconfiguration, which is, they're all idiots at the same time as actually the lived experience, the revelation to many people who've never left the Westminster village, that there's a whole range of ordinary people who are good hearted, generous, community spirited is actually kind of like, oh, who knew that local group has done this or who knew there's these people putting themselves on the line. So I think it's just a mixed picture. That's why I think as well, by the way, that one of the things which might start to grate and uh, uh, I know that informally one of you mentioned this yesterday, but I'll just say it out loud, which is I, of course, want to congratulate NHS frontline workers, but they are not saints. They are doing their job in the most difficult, incredibly grueling situations, but they are not the only people who were actually putting this country, you know, showing it in a good light and working very hard and putting themselves on the line. They are medics. They are there to actually intervene when things like this happen. And, and similarly, I don't want volunteering to simply be reduced to whether you signed up for the government's volunteering scheme. So I think that we want to get away from the notion of official saints and then kind of treating dissenters as sinners. I think that a lot of the community initiatives are going to be more effective even than the NHS volunteers. A lot of the charities and the civil societies that are trying to keep going, like Jess already mentioned, the charity and our friend uh, Nigel Ruddock, let's name him because he's a hero in my view, driving around delivering blood. These are people who do that in a charitable capacity all the time and are now really putting themselves on the line. And so I think it's worth keeping alive the idea that there's a range of people even the people who are being well-behaved and staying indoors, they themselves are doing so out of a sense of duty and out of a sense of wanting to be seen as respectable citizens. And if there is a dividend for take-back control, it's that people want to show that they are responsible enough to not, uh, you know, to do not what they're told, but to take responsibility for this crisis and try and solve it by doing whatever they can. And sometimes that might be whizzing around on a motorbike delivering blood, and sometimes it might be looking after your neighbour and sometimes it might be just staying at home, keeping the kids entertained. So I think that we want to have a general attitude that this has brought out a hugely positive aspect of things and really be quite hard on those who kind of knock everyone as a kind of gotcha game, uh, whether it's in the media or on social media or amongst our mates. A misanthropic attitude uh, should not be encouraged. Let's put it that way. Humanity's on the line. It's going to be after this crisis, it's not just going to be like dive virus, but because we're going to have to rebuild the whole of modern society in every country after this. And so we better believe that humans are capable of going the extra stretch. And I think they are. I think we are. So that's what we should be uh, making sure we push. 
Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed our discussion or disagreed vehemently, why don't you let us know? Comment, share and suggest other topics for future discussions. Social distancing doesn't have to mean social deprivation. So stay safe, stay subscribed to our podcast and newsletter and you'll hear from us soon.